Matamari, welcome to First Up. It is Rapa, Wednesday, the 6th of July. Call Nathan Rarere Aho. Coming up, Sri Lanka's economy hits the skids. The price of food there has risen 80% in June alone. Simon Marks joins us with the latest on the 4th of July shootings. There were multiple ones in the United States. The stoush has broken out in Wellington local body elections over whether billboards should be allowed so far out from polls opening. I know. And as COVID continues to keep people out of our city centres, some suburban high streets are enjoying boom times. If you're working from home and you live close to your town, to why go into the city? It is a bit depressing. I used to live in the city. I can't imagine being there now. There's just nothing going on really. Maria, welcome to First Up. I'm Nathan Rarere and let's begin this morning in Australia where members of a religious sect have been charged in connection with the death of an eight-year-old girl in Queensland and also a whole lot of rain around uh, in New South Wales. Joining me now from Brisbane is our correspondent Pam Corkery. Morena Pam, how are you? Morena, I'm very good, much improved. This is such a sad story, yeah. this Elizabeth stress. I just dreadful. So she was found dead in her Toowoomba home in January. Her parents, Jason and Kerry, they were charged in January of this year for allegedly denying medical care for type 1 diabetes for about six days. The claim is they prayed and chanted instead. So they face murder, torture and failing to provide necessities of life charges. So that's all underway anyhow. They're representing themselves. Yesterday, a dozen fellow members of this religious group, which is unaffiliated to any established church, I suppose is the best way of putting it. Right. Okay. Um, the dozen fellow members, they were also praying over Elizabeth um, as she passed away. They were arrested and they're expected to be charged with murder today. Oh my goodness me. Wow. Uh, I mean, what a... Just, what a, what a horrible, horrible end to that, that poor child's life. Um, Just horrendous. Yeah. And the superintendent said, you know, I'm not aware of a similar event in Queensland, let alone Australia. I thought he was going to cry yesterday again, yeah. Yeah. Um, let's turn to Sydney. Uh, just the flooding again uh, through the and to such high levels, Pam. But also, um, just tell us, is it just around Sydney? I mean, has the Hunter Valley been hit yet? It has been just around Sydney and, um, you know, four major storms over two years. Um, but authorities are acutely now concerned with the Hunter Valley over the next 48 hours because it's starting to head north, this um, rain, you know, downfall of horrendous proportions. However, even when the rain leaves Sydney, they're going to get gale force winds, so they figure they'll have falling trees and power lines. So, I mean, this is displaced... 50,000 people so far. Um, some areas, 800 millimetres of rain in, in four days. And, and the cargo ship Portland Bay, have you followed that, is stranded off the coast. Yeah. And it's just, so they're at, at anchor, but it's ferocious conditions. I get seasick when they do an aerial shot. So the crew are still on board there, and they just can't look like moving it for, for days and days and days. So there thousands of emergency calls. By the way, one hoax call from a person saying I need to be rescued from my roof. It was a hoax. Oh my These God. are volunteer people. Yeah. Yeah, I hope, he, I hope he gets a bottom condition or something. I don't know. <laughs> what a dreadful... You know, I just always think that, but just just have something go wrong, you mm. 
twat. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, I was quite, um, I saw the chart yesterday there that what more rain in Sydney in four days than London gets for a whole year and then some. So it's been quite incredible. We haven't had a bushfire for a while. So hopefully at least it means they haven't got something like that coming this summer. But can you just tell us about the state of the COVID-19 boost? See, because I've I've ticked over into that next box, you know, the check box when you, how old are you thing you see. And it's quite good for me because I'm now eligible for a second booster. Is it the same in Australia? No, well, we're still struggling with third and fourth boosters. Um, the problem is that there's this group that the Australian Technical Advisory Group on Immunisations seems to faff around. You know, they just take forever to decide something because they're dealing with different states. Um, Albanese, Prime Minister Albanese, he arrived back from overseas yesterday and he just said, get a move on. And this has been really welcomed by the various states. I mean, Australia passed a very unpleasant milestone over the weekend, 10,000 deaths from COVID, more than half of which occurred this year. That's 300 Australians losing their lives a week. And, you know, we don't sort of hear about it much because, you know, we're living with COVID. No, dying with COVID. Mm. Yeah. Uh Pam, uh, this one here nearly made me fall off my seat and I think about it for how some Australians reacted to changing one word in the national anthem, how they felt about uh, a flag, you know, acknowledging Indigenous people being flown in Sydney. The Wallabies are going to sing the Australian national anthem in a local Indigenous language this weekend. It's amazing. Fell off my chair myself. But it is wonderful. Do we credit Dave Rennie? Um, Anyhow, they are. uh, NIDOC week is happening at the moment, which is National Aborigines and Islanders Day, Observance Day. Um, And the the, um, Wallabies, I was about to say the Warriors, they they will sing it in the, what is the local language? Yagam, Yagambi language, which even I know that's the sort of local Brisbane one, mm. and it's an attribute to Uncle Lloyd McDermott, the first Wallabies player to identify as a First Nation man. But I think, really said, as a team, we're extremely proud to be able to celebrate this, and they'll be wearing their First Nation jersey on Saturday. I, I do like that one they, they wear when they do that. Thank you very much, Pam Corkery. Good to hear you are safe. Uh, and it's a pleasure to speak every week with Pam Corkery out of Brisbane. If you're listening to us live, it's 11 past five here at First Up on RNZ National. Um, otherwise, you listen to us on the podcast at any time you like. You can download First Up, the show. Well, if you thought that the price of food here was shocking, Sri Lanka's economic and social crisis deepened so much in June that food prices increased by an incredible 80% in the month. Not so Surprisingly, many of the country's 22 million inhabitants are struggling to get enough to eat, and the situation is due to Sri Lanka's government running out of cash to pay for essential imports. The BBC's Rajani Rajanathan has this report. Facing a fragile future, families in Sri Lanka are living in times of uncertainty. Baby Augustia was born prematurely. Every day of her life marked by a worsening economic crisis. We couldn't afford normal food when I was pregnant. I couldn't even buy medicines. Sometimes we adjusted by eating one meal a day. Things are very expensive. Hospitals across Sri Lanka are running out of medicines and equipment to treat patients. Foreign currency to pay for essential imports is running low. You don't know how many times we cried actually. 
right? Because we were very upset and we were very upset to see that some, uh, some important medicines were lacking and uh, because of that uh, the patient's life was in danger. We need more and more donations and we are completely dependent on donations as for now. It's not just medicines they're desperately in need of, but food. As this economic crisis continues to bite, they're turning to handouts. This community kitchen started just a month ago. Now it's serving hundreds. For many, it's the only meal they'll eat all day. We're here because we're hungry. I'm trying to feed my children. My husband is a labourer. We cannot afford to live on his small salary. Food prices went up by 80% in June. Basic fruit and veg is becoming a luxury. Normally, a market like this in Colombo would be packed on a weekend afternoon. But traders here say that people can't afford the fuel to get here, nor can they afford the prices once they arrive. Just to give you an idea, when I started covering this crisis in April, the price of a small apple like this had already tripled since the start of the year. Now it's gone up by five times. So this has become really expensive. It's forced Maria to buy less on her weekly shop. The UN says that more than two-thirds of Sri Lankans have cut down on food since the start of the year. How bad could things get? We're trying to avoid a humanitarian crisis. We are, we're not yet at children dying, which is good, but we need to get the support very urgently to avoid that. These families in Colombo among those feeling this crisis most. The city's mayor says the capital could run out of food by September, warning that the worst is yet to come. Quarter past five, you're listening to First Up here in RNZ National with me, Nathan Radaday, and uh, this is feedback time. I want to get your thoughts on something. I found it a bit weird yesterday that it was, the way it was framed in many a newsroom around uh, about the falling prices of houses. And I, I thought it was kind of framed as, oh, this is terrible. Uh, falling house prices, well, good thing, bad thing. What are your thoughts on it? Good thing, bad thing. I know what I think, but I want to know what you think. Falling house prices, what do you make of that? Good thing, bad thing. Uh, is it a positive? Is it a negative? Text us 2101, or you can do it the old-fashioned way, first up at rnz.co.nz. We will go to the Middle East now, and I'm joined from Doha by our correspondent, Alex Baird. Morena, Alex, how are you? Morena, Nathan. It's a very hot 40 degrees over here. Oh, same. No, it's not. It's really cold. <laughs> hey, um, <laughs> it's, it's all go. The, the pilgrims are back this week for the first time in, what, the, the Hajj pilgrims' first time in, in ages, a couple of years. They are. So this is the most important pilgrimage for Muslims in Islam. Um, the Hajj pilgrimage, usually most people try to en- endeavor to make as many every single year. But since the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, Saudi Arabia said, hey, we're not doing this anymore. The risk is too great. Last year, there were only around 60,000 pilgrims, local pilgrims permitted. This year, we're expecting 1 million because they're throwing open the gates again. For those at home who not, aren't quite sure what the Hajj pilgrimage is, it's the one that you often see on telly where there are you know, thousands of people going around in circles and there's a very large mosque in the background. Um, it's quite hypnotizing to watch, actually, but it's a big moment for, for Muslims around the world that they can do one of the most important things as part of their religion once again. 
Yeah. Um, now, interesting change in Israel, and it's a change of prime minister and things. I don't know how stable they are there. Who's in charge now? Yeah, Israeli politics have been all, all over the show, not just at the moment, but for the last four years. This is the um, fifth time that we've had a, a change. Um, Yair Lapid, he is the interim prime minister at this stage until we can have new elections. It'll be the fifth election in four years. Um, he's a really interesting guy. He's a former, the foreign, former foreign minister. He's been a journalist. He's been a children's books author, book author. He's um, been in the army. He's done a bit of boxing on the side. He's done a bit of all sorts. He's a centrist um, sort of politician, and he's going to hold the fort until we can work out who's actually once again going to form a government in Israel. Israel's been really struggling the last few years to have some sort of stable government. They keep falling through constantly. Benjamin Netanyahu, who was uh, who has been the leader for, for, for much of that time, and it was a bit of a controversial figure. He's pretty white right wing. He's hoping to get back into back into government and be the leader once again when the new elections uh, come around at the end of the year. But until then, this uh, new man is at the helm, Yair Lapid. Wow. He sounds like a renaissance man, the boxer, the writer. the That's the world leader who should be showing up shirtless on a horse, right, if you've got that kind He's of CV. modelled as well, I think. Oh, and he was a model. There you go. Of course, he, of, of course, of course. Tell me the, the latest on this Russian ship that's full of that Ukrainian grain. Yeah, so so for those of you who don't know what was happening here, basically a, a Russian ship has allegedly been loaded with seven thousand tons of stolen uh, Russian grain. was was making its way through the Black Sea, hoping to pass through the Bosphorus Straits. Now that's a small body of water that passes through Istanbul and would allow a ship to go into the Mediterranean. Um, but the Ukrainians asked the Turks, "Hey, we we have we've heard that there's this." huge shipment of stolen grain about to pass through. Um, can you please stop it and seize it? So the Turks have stopped this ship. They're now investigating whether or not this is indeed stolen grain. Um, for those who are following what's been happening as part of the Ukraine war, um, there have been massive issues with food supply um, across the world because Ukraine is one of the biggest um, producers of grain. They're a really important country in terms of supplying food for the world. They supply food essentially for hundreds of millions of people. And so the idea that the the Russians are now stealing that grain and selling it and making the money themselves was, was pretty abhorrent to the Ukrainians. So the Turks are holding on to the ship at the moment. We don't know what's going to end up happening with, with uh, happening to it, but it'll be interesting to see whether the Turks... Um, seize it for the Ukrainians or allow it in the end to pass through into the Mediterranean to be sold on. Gee, that's a test of fortitude because Turkey will be having a look at that and the Russians, of course, will be leaning going, no, it isn't. It isn't stolen. Is it? <laughs> you know, and, and you've got a, quite a, a large aggressive beast that is telling you that they haven't stolen that grain off their neighbours. Um, hey, Alex, thank you very much for your time. Uh, he joins us every week out of Doha. He's always on top of things. He's Alex Beard. Well, nestled high amongst the pungas, uh, the high above West Auckland sits Titirangi. It's home to artists, potters, and macrame weavers. Well, it is on the pamphlets anyway. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was once. It can be again if today's Trade Me real estate listing is a sign of things to come. Producer Jeremy Parkinson talked with Trade Me's Millie Sylvester about the perfect Titirangi dwelling and what looks like an ex army Land Rover, which features in this week's car section.
It is ex-military, and to be honest, it looks like something out of an Indiana Jones movie. It's desert colour, which is, of course, perfect, and the 1988 Defender is, of course, four-wheel drive. It's a two-seater, but it also has this soft canopy on the back, which, you know, could perhaps hold your camping gear, a chili bin, or perhaps a furry friend or two. And the vehicle is really cool because on the sides of it and, and on the um, on the, the front, there's a rope, there's a spade, there's a spare tyre, there's fuel tanks on the back. You, you are really ready for anything in this type of vehicle. And it even has a matching nudge bar in the same sort of desert colour, just to prove to anyone that, you know, you are ready for action with this vehicle. Yep, straight out of the desert road, this one. <laughs> it really is a classic looking, if you're a, one of those military people, it is one of those... It would fit into a, a parade or something like that as well. Turn up to your RSA and they'll give you a free beer, I'm sure. Absolutely. And even in the images on, on the listing, you can see that it's been used for Anzac Day parades and all sorts. So the current bid at the moment is 7300 which, to be honest, I think is pretty good. But it's had 25,000 views and nearly 1,000 Kiwis are actually watching this listing. They've added it to their watch list. So it'll be interesting to see how much this one fetches when the, the auction closes at 8pm tonight. I love the jerry cans at the back too, That just to add that touch. It really is a outdoor machine of some uh, repute the old Land Rover that's a beautiful example the property this week this is an octagonal shaped house in Auckland's Titarangi which for those who who aren't aware of where Titarangi is it's up in the Waitakere Ranges it's a very bushy green suburb and this place looks like it's just grown straight out of the bush it absolutely does. So this house is on the market for the first time in 50 years and the current owners actually built the property and they built it to be completely octagonal and the idea was that from the north if you were looking at this house it would look like a control tower and they have absolutely succeeded in making it look a little bit like a control tower. So it's three beds, three bath and as you said it's nestled amongst the bush as so many properties in that area are. And it is super quiet. It's like this tranquil little treehouse kind of vibe, apart from the birds, of course, which apparently wake you up in the morning. Now, the house is, is made from timber and absolutely jam-packed with furniture as unique as the property itself. So there's a copper range hood, there's quirky copper lighting, you know, that sort of just blends in perfectly with, with all of the timber that's within the house. And there's this incredible spiral staircase right smack bang in the center so you know if, if the octagonal house wasn't enough you didn't have eight reasons to purchase this property already there's also a one bedroom unit to the side of the house which actually is your typical square shape but it, it is a very quirky and amazing property with a really cool story behind it yeah lots of wood too i love that it just sort of it's when i think of uh, titarangi and langholm this is the kind of house i picture so uh, jump onto trade me to have a look at that one really is uh, something straight out of 1972 and carpet as thick as your arm too if you <laughs> uh, if you're up for that lastly today is a it's an outfit that was actually worn in one of the terminator movies by one of the terminators tell us about this costume yeah, so Terminator fans could be very keen to get their hands on some pretty cool movie memorabilia. So up for auction is a genuine screen news costume from the 2019 movie Terminator Dark Fate. So it was worn by Gabrielle Luna, who played Rev 9, and it is the complete outfit, like boots and all. So 
the auction is for an El Paso, Texas police overalls, about 180 centimetres tall, a plain blue T-shirt, the leather boots that were actually worn. And of course, it comes with a certificate of authenticity just to prove that it is the real deal. So the main scene in which this costume's on display can actually be found on YouTube. It's the plane fight scene for those who are very familiar with Terminator. And it's really cool because the listing includes some photos from the film to show the scenes where the costumes were used. So in very, very good condition and haven't actually been worn since their production. But it's always really cool when we see these pieces of movie memorabilia and TV memorabilia come up on site, which they do from time to time. Because, you know, for movie buffs, if if this is your favourite movie, what an awesome opportunity to actually own something from the film. So this one closes on Thursday at 7pm and they are asking $1,399 is the buy now. But you might be able to get it a little bit cheaper for just over a thousand bucks with no reserve. So we'll see how that one goes. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. This is the day of our life that we like to call the 6th of July. Uh, born in 1907 on this day was Frida Kahlo, of course, artist, writer, um, incredible life story. Uh, she was born here in 1907. And there's a couple of uh, American gentlemen turning 76 today. Uh, one of them was the first, uh, in fact, the only United States president to earn an MBA He was the 43rd President of the United States. You know him as George Walker Bush. He's turning 76 today. And so is Sylvester Gardenzio Stallone, born on this day in 1946. Uh, uh, Actor Kevin Hart is 43. 50 Cent, he's 47 today. And Burt Ward, who was Robin, you know, the boy wonder in the TV series of Batman. Still the best of all the Batman. There you go. Uh, Burt Ward turned 77 today. It was interesting, at age two, Burt Ward set a record because he was the world's youngest professional ice skater. There we are. Happenings on this day. In 1957, a young fellow called Paul McCartney, who was 15, went to a, uh, what did he see? He saw John Lennon, who was 16, saw his band The Quarrymen performing at the St. Peter's uh, Walton's Parish Church in Liverpool on this day in 1957 and said, can I play? And they went, okay. And in 1994, Forrest Gump came out, uh, started, uh, Tom Hanks had hit the theatres this day in 1994. They made the whole thing for $55 million. The box office that it took was $678.2 million. Movie received 13 Academy Award nominations, took home six Oscars. Well, one of the women was Hanks second in the Best Actor category. And remember, it had that character Jenny uh, from Forrest Gump, who was low-key, uh, possibly the meanest bad person in all of 90s cinema, um, only rivaling the bees at the end of My Girl. And uh, that is... Uh, what happened on this day on the 6th of July. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I want money. Joining us now from our business team is Nicholas Pointing. Kia ora, Nicholas. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm just coming to terms with the fact that 50 Cent is 47 years old. I know, old. I know. 50... But he's nearly fitting. <laughs> yeah, there should be some sort of coronation on that. Or something like that. I don't that. know if he can still do the upside down chin up uh, sit up <laughs> thing there. Anyway, um, now this is something I'm actually I'm asking the audience about this because I was interested with how it's been framed. Um, house prices dropping. Yes. T- tell me, tell me about these. Well, look, just to 
Just to look at the key figures here. So in the past three months, health, house, pri- health prices, house prices <laughs> house have had their biggest quarterly fall since February 2009. They've eased by 2.3% mm. over the past month. They've fallen by 0.8%. Interesting is, well, let's get to the reasons why. It's that familiar cocktail, right? It's, it's, it's rising interest rates, the high cost of living, um, most house prices for most people are still very unaffordable. Mm. Um, it really is people who are trying to get into the market are really struggling to do so. You are also seeing people like property investors who do tend to have cash, um, who do not necessarily face the same challenges that first home buyers, and now actually just sitting on the sidelines. They want to see where the market's going before they decide to enter into it. So that's mainly the... Um, those are the key factors that's really driving this fall. Interesting to note that Auckland, which is one of the regions that saw the most aggressive acceleration in house prices, Boy, howdy, did it. <laughs> is now seeing the biggest fall. Over yeah. the past quarter, house prices in Auckland have fallen a whisker under 5%. And look, you're mentioning framing. I suspect it's about you know falling house prices being described as a bad thing. Mm. I, I, I found that interesting, and I, was, I thought many newsrooms around New Zealand did it, and I thought to myself, but it's also more affordable for, for people. Isn't that a good thing? Well, like, wasn't wasn't that one of the lead-ups to the last few elections? People were going, houses cost so much, please don't make them cost so much. Mm. But then when they drop a bit, it's like, oh, it's terrible. Look, I, it's not really my place to comment on how other newsrooms frame it. I'm looking at the web piece that my colleague wrote last night, and it's mm. pretty down the middle just... This is what's happening in the market. Mm, mm. In terms of you know falling house prices being a good thing or a bad thing, you know it's in the eye of the beholder really. But there was a period last you know past couple of years where we're seeing such rapid aggressive increases in house prices. It was being framed as a good thing, right? Yeah, but yeah. for a generation of New Zealanders, they felt themselves being locked out of the housing market. But I think to caution, you know. Falling house prices, you could say it could be framed as a good thing, but a good thing for whom? That's the question I would put out there because we just had that story a couple of weeks ago about how 2022 is the worst year for first home buyers in nearly 65 years. Mm. For CoreLogic, who put out this report, they put out a quarterly report that looks at affordability. They've noted that first home buyers' proportion of the market has been falling. So it's kind of house prices are falling. If you're locked out of the market, you're thinking, oh, yep, that's a good thing. You go to a bank and try to get a mortgage and they're going to say, look, mate, you're probably not going to be able to afford this. (laughs) Because when we stress test you up to 7%, it's it's not necessarily you may not be able to actually manage these payments. We're really nervous about lending to you. Obviously not the exact same, but almost that same frustration that you feel when you first get you're trying to get into the job market and they go... Oh, you've got no experience. No, no, I want to hire someone with experience. You're like, I can't get experience yeah. if I don't have experience. It's so, the same thing, you know, like in the eye of the beholder. I know, but I'm not beholding one and I'd really like to. And then I'll decide how I've, you know. Yeah. So, so it's interesting, so, eh? Yeah. No, it's complicated. You know, house it prices, it's <laughs> such a source of wealth here in New Zealand. It's such a measure of uh, yeah. it's such a measure of your wealth nowadays. You know, I feel like if you own a house, you're by definition a Wealthy. middle class or above. You yeah. Know? Like, <laughs> you are the gentry. But yeah, yeah interesting to see how it's framed. Um, and it's worth keeping hmm. in mind just those contextual factors that they are falling, but who's it benefiting? Yeah. 
Um, so Okay, so 2101 audience, uh, just let us know. Good thing, bad thing about the house prices. You can hear more from the business team on Morning Report this morning at 10 to 7. Thanks very much, Nicholas. Um, look, Kopapa Māori health providers in Hastings say whānau can now get immediate mental health support instead of having to jump through hoops. The Associate Minister of Māori Health, Pini Hinari, uh, was in Hiratonga yesterday to visit some of the providers. Our reporter in Tamato Maui, Tom Kitchen, has more. Kopapa Māori Mental Health Services are now running across Hawke's Bay, informed and anchored by Mātauranga Māori. Te Taifenua Orheratonga is running one of them. Its Chief Executive Weyland Tahuri Whaipakanga says it will be a big change for Fano. These are the first two services I've known in my career of 25 years where someone can work, walk in the door with a Māotomoro um, issue or problem and see someone straight away. She says it's a big improvement on how things were beforehand. There was a lot of barriers in our contracts. They had to have, um, they had to go either go to the DHB or see clinicians. This way, we can get some kaimahi out who know the whānau and can get into homes and start supporting people right from the coalface. She's pleased it's finally here. There's no barriers or um, there's no criteria if you're unwell or you have a little bit of distress or some distress, you can come here and I'm so glad. This has been, we've been crying out this for in health for over 30 years. Associate Minister of Māori Health, Penny Hinare, says he knows the difficulties Pano have faced in the past. For uh, low to moderate stresses, the mental wellbeing challenge in regions like this is huge. And so making sure we can support those services to reach people is what we're here to do today. While some of these services are new, some have been in train for a year or so. Mr Henare says the providers will help to akafai order the Māori Health Authority develop more. What this gives us an opportunity is to continue to explore kaupapa Māori health services, in particular mental health services, and how te akafai order can support those into the future. But he still says finding the right kind of kaimahi, that staff, or any kaimahi at all, is a big challenge. That'll be a big focus for Te Aka Faiora. There's uh, some good intentions, lots of uh, goodwill, but there just aren't enough either qualified or kaiafina positions um, that are being filled. So we need to work on a clear strategy. And that's not just the case here in uh, Ngāti Kahungunu and this little here. It's the case across the country. It's hoped these new services will make for a more positive experience for tangata whaiora, a term used for patients which pertains to a deeper understanding of people seeking a path forward in line with Māori well-being. Tom Kitchen with that report. Wellington mayoral candidate Paul Eagle has put his election billboards back up despite being told that they breach electioneering rules. Mr Eagle insists that he's entitled to get his name and face out to the Wellington public even though there's still more than three months to go until polls close. Uh, and as complaints pile up, Wellington City Council admits there's actually little they can do because their own rules lack some teeth. Rosie Gordon reports. On a dreary grey Wellington day, a large yellow digital billboard lights up the top of the Embassy Theatre. It's brandished with the words, Vote Eagle. Paul Eagle's first lot of campaign ads was removed after Wellington City Council received a flurry of complaints and informed him they breached hoarding guidelines. These state that signs must not be erected earlier than six weeks prior to Election Day. However, on Monday, the Wellington mural candidate erected a new batch of signs, insisting he's entirely to advertise his campaign, even though it's so far out from the election. I mean, they're applying hoardings rules to billboards and just getting it plain wrong. So let's get that clarity 
But what I'm not okay with is being singled out, uh, as being the sole candidate who's been singled out, who is complying with the law, and then they are saying that I'm not. So Mr Eagle says the new billboards are here to stay. Given that I have confidence in my legal advice, we're continuing with my original plan, which is to use commercial billboards. But the council isn't impressed. Here's spokesperson Richard McLean. We would like the, the billboards to be pulled down because they are being displayed outside the uh, six-week period preceding the upcoming election. Mr McLean says members of the public are still complaining about the signs, but he concedes there's nothing more the council can do. The problem being that the policy doesn't have uh, teeth, and so what we've generally uh, relied on in the past is for uh, candidates just to abide by it. He says the council will examine the possible loopholes in its election sign rules. Well, obviously we we are concerned and that's that's why we will be looking at the situation via the, the review of the district plan. So um, that, that is probably our best avenue for introducing rules that can be enforced. Tori Fano is the only other candidate officially in the race for the mayoralty so far. She's concerned that the weak electioneering rules create an unfair playing field. There are those of us in this race who do not have the, the same access to resource that Paul does. And for me, that's not creating a, a truly democratic race. So I, I'd certainly like a review and in future elections, a higher level of, of enforcement. Wellington Mayor Andy Foster, who is yet to announce whether he'll stand again, has his own concerns about the Paul Eagle billboards. Curious that uh, we've got billboards that are talking about him as an independent. At the same time, we've also got billboards which have him as a labor, clearly Labour-branded MP. Auckland Council says it's also received four complaints about election signs being displayed prior to the permitted period. University of Otago law professor Andrew Geddes says the best way to ensure candidate advertising is fair is to extend rules on campaign spending. For the three months before an election, there are limits on how much candidates can spend. Outside of those three months under the law, uh, candidates are welcome to do whatever they want. If we really want to create a kind of more level playing field, then the way to do it would be to create a longer restricted period in which candidates can spend their money. For now, both Wellington mayoral candidates agree they want to stop talking signs and start debating the city's issues. The professionals of the RNZ ship uh, morning report. It's time to run a quick single here with Corin Dan. Kia ora, Corin, how are you? Quick, go. I'm very well. Uh, it was looking <laughs> like a quick single, but now we've got, what, two senior cabinet ministers resigning in the UK. Uh, so there is a, well, there's a full-on crisis for Boris Johnson's government, you'd have to say at the moment now. Oh. This is over this issue with the chief Deputy Chief Whip, uh, Chris Pincher, being appointed even though Boris Johnson now has now acknowledged he knew there were allegations around, well, there was, I think they are upheld, hmm. uh, concerns around misconduct. So, big uh, constitutional uh, government crisis in the UK. Uh, it's been rumbling for a while, but this seems like a, a major turning point. So we'll definitely have quite a lot on that. Back here very quickly, uh, we're going to look, uh, we'll talk to Nicola Willis. She's in for uh, Christopher Luxon, who's in the UK. But we're going to talk immigration. This issue is just um, really bubbling along. The ANZ yesterday came out, Chief uh, Chief Executive came out yesterday, was saying uh, we, you need to open up the borders, bring in more migrants, there's not enough workers. Uh, so we'll also talk to the Immigration Minister about this as well. So I think this issue is starting to, to come to the surface. 
process that the shortage of labour really hits. Righto. Thank you very much. Uh, Corinne Dan, of course, up with us uh, after 60 with Susie Ferguson. Well, uh, to the USA now, where they're, they're still coming to terms with yet another mass shooting on top of another mass shooting on top of another one. Just over 24 hours ago, attendees of a 4th of July parade in a suburb of Chicago, just north of Chicago, were targeted from the rooftops by another young white man with a high-powered rifle. Joining me now from Washington, D.C., is our correspondent, Simon Marks. Morena, Simon. I wish I had different things to talk about, but we don't. Just um, and there were more than just this one. But can you tell us what you know about the suspect in in this case in Highland Park? Well, I mean, the first point to make, Nathan, is you know what kind of a country is unable even to celebrate its birthday without a mass shooting? Mm. Uh, the suspect was arrested last night after a brief police chase. Robert Cremo, now known to be 21 years old, a local resident who left a long trail of videos on YouTube and other social media platforms, some of which indicated that he'd been planning uh, this assault for quite a while. They were all hastily and belatedly removed by those social media organisations from public view shortly after his arrest. We got more details uh, of the investigation and what it has learnt so far uh, from Christopher Cavelli of the Lake County Sheriff's Department. We do believe Cremo pre-planned this attack for several weeks. Uh, He brought a high-powered rifle to this parade. He accessed the roof of a business via a fire escape ladder and began opening fire on the innocent Independence Day celebration goers. The rifle was purchased in Illinois, and the information we have thus far is that it appears to have been purchased legally by Primo. Also purchased legally, a second rifle that they found in the car that he was using when he was stopped by police and arrested. They say they also found pistols in an address connected uh, to Robert Cremo. Again, all legally acquired. And there were more details offered by Chris Cavelli. During the attack, Cremo was dressed in women's clothing, and investigators do believe he did this to conceal his facial tattoos and his identity and help him during the escape uh, with the other people who were fleeing the chaos. During the attack, we believe that Cremo fired more than 70 rounds from this rifle into the crowd of innocent people. They say they have no indication yet of what his motive may have been for the assault. He has not disclosed one, but they specifically ruled out questions about whether Highland Park, which is an affluent suburb north of the centre of Chicago, may have been targeted because of the size of its Jewish community. They say there is no evidence to support the view that this attack may in any way have been uh, racially or religiously motivated. Simon, I I watched again yesterday in fascination with that and then I saw it in Philadelphia during a, um, a July 4th celebration. I think some policemen were shot, and then there was you know, people's footage. But the one that also got me as well, there was one in Orlando, and they were at a big fireworks display, and some people in the crowd were just setting off fireworks you know, because they were getting in on it. But people freaked out because they thought it was gunfire, and they, they stampeded off. So, Simon, it, it, it seems like the, this has really gotten, it's sunken into the general population, hasn't it? They've got to be scared to even be outside. Yeah, I I mean, there's no question about it. I mean, we are now, we have seen more mass shootings in this country 
this year than there have been individual days of the year so far. Mm. And I think there is no question that this is an American public. I mean, when you see a Norman Rockwell scene like that was yesterday in Highland Park, Chicago, floats going down the main street, fire trucks on display, a klezmer band playing, and then suddenly that assault there. We saw hundreds of people running for their lives in Philadelphia last night after two police were injured there by gunfire. The scenes that you referred to uh, in Orlando where it wasn't even gunfire that created panic, but the sense that it might have been. Uh, I mean, this is now a country conditioned to expect incidents of mass gun violence anytime, any place. It can happen literally anywhere. Well, I see it's just happened within driving distance of the Highland Park one in, in Gary, Indiana, which is, I think I heard of Google, it's only about an hour's drive away, Simon. Yeah, that's right. There was that incident in Gary, Indiana, again tied to July the 4th. Three people killed and seven wounded at a block party uh, there. Uh, a massive police response uh, brought in in the very early hours of Tuesday morning. So it was after uh, the main Independence Day celebrations had kind of died down. Uh, all of this underscoring the fact that even though President Biden last month uh, signed uh, a fresh package of gun proposals into law, the first uh, package of proposals that Republicans and Democrats had been able to agree upon in decades on Capitol Hill. None of those uh, regulations, as far as we know so far from the investigations that are underway into these incidents, would have headed any of these incidents off. And yeah. the, the regulations themselves, highly diluted, not even a notion of a whiff of talk about any kind of ban on assault rifles, which, uh, again, in uh, Chicago, were absolutely responsible for this uh, atrocity. Yeah, they were. Thank you very much. Out of Washington, D.C., that is Simon Marks. We head towards 6 o'clock here at 7 minutes 2 on First Up on RNZ National with me, Nathan Ardity. Well, walking the streets of our main city centres these days is a very different experience to what it was like, obviously, before COVID came to town. But in stark contrast, the, the closed shop fronts in the inner cities and empty sidewalks there are the CBDs. Many suburban or outlying town centres are actually busier than ever. Here's our producer, Matthew Tunison, speaking with Aucklanders on Coronation Road in Mangan bridge where it actually can be hard to find a table or a car park these days. If we go there the city prices are skyrocketing even in the little dairies it's more expensive so why would we go to town when we can just have it in our local areas where the price is decent enough for us. Not low but it's decent enough for us. And at the same time have you noticed like this area Mangere Bridge Town Centre has really it's booming now isn't it? Yes. I don't know about whether it's got to do with prices and differences between going to town but the locals have always come here. I think they just, we got more people coming outside here. They're more interested now. They're coming not only from Mangrove Bridge, but from outside yeah. Mangrove Bridge. It's a lot of effort to drive into to the city and looking for parking, and especially the petrol prices have gone up. So if you're working from home and you live close to your town, yeah. so why go into the city? It's a lot more closer here. Yeah. Are you so working from home? Or you? I do, yes, most of the time. Yeah. Well, I've just been down to the CBD a few times and all the shops are closed or a lot of them are closed and there's very few people around and a lot of these places like Mongaway Bridge are really buzzing. Mm. You come along, I come here quite often for a cup of coffee and a cake in the afternoon or yeah. uh, come in for breakfast sometimes yeah. and there's always seems to be busy. There's places to park, uh, you know, try parking the city now, you've got to pay I don't know how much for, for half an hour's parking and that's not enough time to have a coffee at 
in, in peace. Yes. You can just put, you can park here for nothing, and uh, plenty of parking spaces. Little supermarket yes. down the road. What else could you want? Is it a bit depressing to have a city centre which is so dead? Yeah, it is. It is a bit depressing. I, I used to live in the city, but uh, I can't imagine being there now. Yeah, yeah. There's just nothing going on really. And it's not only an Auckland phenomenon. Uh, joining me now to explain what's been happening is Chris Wilkinson from Retail Analysts First Retail Group. Chris, thanks very much for being here. Uh, do you think this this came around when we were all stuck at home, we had to walk around the suburbs and that whole buy local thing really kicked in? Absolutely, Nathan. That was a key catalyst. What happened with COVID was it arrested people's um, previous patterns, the, the things that they, they did habitually. Um, and also it reconnected them with their local communities. And that, that was a, um, a key driving force in, in what we're seeing right now. Mm. Yeah, you've been looking at the situation there on the Kapiti Coast. What, how is it going there? Well, Kapiti's a very interesting place. So uh, a, a lot of people, uh, traditionally it was a, a sort of an ageing community. A lot of younger people have moved up there. And what we saw through COVID, and this was across the country, is that younger people were drawn to these areas. They became sea changes, tree changes, that kind of phenomenon where they were moving more towards values-based rather than economic-based um, uh, decisions. And, and, and that we've seen in other areas, other coastal areas and other rural areas, the Wairarapa, far north, um, Bay of Plenty, Coromandel, Thames, those areas have been really strong. I was thinking, Chris, because I was thinking of the local suburb where I live, and now I go past one of our local restaurants, and it is heaving, like it's buzzing, and it's really nice. Uh, they, they changed their menu up a bit, and they did that, but I thought it was interesting in that package mentioned too, the, the cover charge that used to happen when you drove into uh, the city centres of New Zealand, and you could pay some pretty high parking prices, right? In, in town, it's it's like, you know, that, that extra bit where every half hour you're like, this is costing an extra seven or eight bucks, is um, that's going to be a huge put off as well. So how does a CBD fight back against that? Well the CBD needs what we call as earn the return. We're working on a number of CBDs here in New Zealand and overseas and it's all about driving amenity for those office workers developing new types of environments and experiences. We're seeing a lot of that happening in Auckland and Wellington right now. Developments are underway with some pretty major projects so kind of, it's a bit of a watch this space yeah, it is, isn't it, as well? I mean, just, just um, do people spend as much in the suburbs or outlying areas as they did in this? And, like, is it good for the economy? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Look, the Cuddy Coast is a very good example. So um, their spending growth over the last couple of years has been up 23%. That's 15% higher than the west, west of Wellington's region. That's just one example alone. The Wairap is very similar. And, again, we're seeing the same type of thing happening in, in the Waikato as well. Yeah, Chris, thank you so much for your time. That's Chris Wilkinson, uh, retail analyst there at the First Retail Group. Yeah, it is. it has been interesting, the rise of the suburbs that way. I asked this morning about house prices, what you thought, good news, bad news. Steve says, come on, guys, shallow reporting on house prices. They're falling because the market is correcting. What does anyone expect when the cheap money, extremely low interest rates, cause a massive increase in price in a short time frame? This one's come in from someone who didn't put their name on it, but they go, down is good news. When young professionals on good income can't afford a first house, prices are too high. Plenty of 
of houses, too many people with multiple properties. Uh, Carl says if lower house prices are not benefiting first home buyers and they need to fall more. Another one, a reduction in price is good for everyone. This country's far too obsessed with house prices as a measure of success. Well, I hope all of you have a successful day. Uh, Morning Report is next with Susie and Corin. You can listen to First Up at your convenience by downloading the podcast. Otherwise, us First Up team will be back in your ears at 5am. Ah, Popo.